one of the tasks an actor has to do often is to make these words my own, because sometimes just the vocabulary itself or the syntax of it would throw me off and feel foreign to me unless I take the time to let the language inhabit me deeply and become my language. Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Louis Coliani. Louis Coliani is a prominent voice, speech, dialect, and text director in the professional theater. He teaches voice, speech, phonetics, acting, and Shakespeare performance. He has served as a voice and text coach for productions at theaters throughout the United States, including Hold Your Breath, the Santa Fe Opera, Playwrights Horizons, Williamstown Theater Festival, Westport Country Playhouse, the McCarter Theater, the Labyrinth Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Kansas City Rep, Milwaukee Rep, Arizona Theater Company, and many, many more. He is the author of several books, including The Joy of Phonetics and Accents, Shakespeare's Names, A New Pronouncing Dictionary, Bringing Speech to Life with Claudia Anderson, and How to Speak Shakespeare with Cal Prittner. He teaches at the Actors Studio Drama School at Pace University, Voice into Shakespeare, Shakespeare at Yale School of Drama, and as visiting associate professor of speech and dialects at Syracuse University Department of Drama. It's so nice to have you. Hi. How are you doing? Doing great. Louis, I'd like to ask you a formative question to go way back. What began your fascination with Shakespeare? Well, I think partially that I didn't know anything about it. It was something I needed to add to my toolkit. I think as a kid also, I, I was kind of fascinated with Edwin Booth and his career and his strange life. And I think that also made me interested in Shakespeare. I went to acting school for a couple of years, never finished. And we did certainly work on Shakespeare there. But as a still very young actor, I had started teaching. I started teaching children. And I think I became very interested in teaching to my surprise never having been that good of a student growing up. <laughs> Maybe I figured I wanted to, in a way, conform the classroom to my tastes and <laughs> learning style. So I did, as a young teacher, start to think, you know, I wish I knew more about Shakespeare so I could teach it. And then, actually, uh, I did work as a, an actor for a couple of years with a Shakespeare company. And It's ironic that you say that you dropped out of acting school, and you're a teacher at some of the most distinguished acting schools in the country. Do you think that if you were to do it over again, at some of the places that you're teaching now, would you have finished your training? Well, I, I don't think it would have made much difference. I did continue training, just not in the formalized setting of a university, but I did train with master teachers. My primary influence is Kristen Linklater, the voice teacher who wrote Freeing the Natural Voice. And she was my teacher and coach at Shakespeare and Company when I was a young actor there. And in learning from Kristen at that time, I didn't realize it, but the more closely I followed her and her teaching, I was actually observing her as a teacher and admiring her as a teacher. And as they say, what you admire, you become. And so I did turn my focus to teaching. Your book, How to Speak Shakespeare, was written with Cal Prittner. Yes, that's right. And Cal Prittner has recently died. And in fact, what I'm most interested in sharing with you today is the work of Cal Prittner, who was a good friend 
and mentor. Approaching Shakespeare can be very daunting, especially for first-time actors, and taking a process that is so fraught and complex-seeming and distilling it down to its essence is no small achievement. What drove that impetus? Well, I think with the sort of background that I had and this simple idea that Cal brought to me, we just hit a, a point of collaboration where we each had something to offer to this idea. It's a simplified process that young students can use. It can be used by high schools or people who are just sort of getting their feet wet with Shakespeare for the first time can use it. But we do find that people who are involved in Shakespeare and who've done it for years will find it refreshing to review some of these basics. It's a primer in what to do if you just want to speak this stuff and be understood. It's very, very user-friendly. Well, yes, we were striving for that. The book at first might appear simplistic. It's got to be more complicated than that. So, for example, we don't identify all the different kinds of feet that can appear in verse. We don't talk about trochees and dactyls and spondees and anapests and so forth. What we say, and I know there are those who would object to this, we say that all of Shakespeare's verse spoken by characters is written in iambic pentameter. Assume that rhythm so that anything unusual that you come across is a deviation from iambic pentameter. And we didn't invent this philosophy either. In fact, Cal credits Michael Langham with first introducing him to it. I myself never start teaching Shakespeare with scansion. And when we do get around to anything approaching scansion in my work, it will be this simplified idea that the meter is always iambic pentameter. So figure out where the author of this is breaking the rules or the rhythms driven by character, circumstance, relationship are deviating from that. You know, if you think about what happened to Shakespeare from the 1700s onward, the editorial impulse to correct the Shakespeare texts to make them more accessible to the reading public was a huge mistake. And so we keep finding our way back to the folio, the, the quartos, to see how was this printed? Why is the modern punctuation different? And why are so many words capitalized? And why are they spelled three different ways? And all of those clues that you can find by looking back into what were really essentially acting editions. So if you look at the plays that way, you've got to sort of reach through the literary into the performable. Your book, when it cites examples from the text, does preserve original spellings and punctuations yes. from the folio. That's right. And it's a funny thing, because we wanted to work from the first folio. And so then we thought, you know, one of the best speeches that we could use to introduce this method would be the first prologue. And uh, of course, that's not in the folio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. its first appearance is the second quarto. You're right. And of course, that predates the folio. And it does have those attributes of punctuation and capitalizations and spellings of words that are aesthetically or artistically written. And so we preserve those because we feel it helps the language jump off the page. It captures the imagination of the actor more than the reader. And then I can talk you briefly through the process. 
The first thing we have everyone do, we have them look up all the unfamiliar words, which is, you know, terribly important. You know, sometimes I've been coaching a play, I won't mention any names or theaters, <laughs> and I'll say to an actor, this line just doesn't sound clear to me. The actor will say, oh yeah, that, I never knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> so it's important to get that stuff out of the way right at the beginning. Now, you know, there's Schmidt's lexicon, and that's a fine resource and comprehensive, but it's sort of pre-digested, you know? Mm -hmm. And so even though you can use Schmidt's lexicon, it'll, it'll be fine, and it is expedient. The more inspiring place Cal and I found to send students is to the Oxford English Dictionary. Oh, my God, Lewis, I couldn't agree more. I discovered that in grad school. And it was mind-blowing. Yeah, so what was it about that that inspired you? Well, one of the things that I discovered as I was working on my speeches is that often when I was looking up a word, the first usage of that word was the text I was working on. And if you looked carefully enough, you'd find the quotation from the speech in a particular definition of that word. Yes, yeah, so that is the point, and I can hear it in your voice. It's very inspiring to see that appearance of the word in print in that play, in that line, that you're looking up. It's amazing. That oh, yeah. the word had never appeared in print in just that way prior to that. Exactly. And it's a wonderful experience, as you know. So what sounds like an academic task of looking up words in the Oxford English Dictionary can actually be a very living and visceral experience. Absolutely. Well, I think you were mentioning earlier anapests and dactyls. I don't know how that helps an actor. I do know that what you say in How to Speak Shakespeare, what you and Cal say, is very helpful. So, you know, this is, again, back to that schism between reading plays for silent enjoyment or saying them out loud. And if you're going to say Shakespeare out loud, it's sort of akin to when people read scripture in church. It can sound like dead language that's being recited, or it can come to life all over again. I know from, for instance, what Shakespeare wrote in his sonnets, that bringing words to life was something that he called a miracle. And so I think when we process this language through our bodies, and it comes out from the genuine impulse of what we mean to say, and then it's received by somebody who is then changed by what we said, well, that's bringing the language back to life. And it's necessary if we're going to perform these plays. Well, I feel like we have to hear the Romeo and Juliet prologue, which, by the way, is a sonnet. How do you feel about doing it? I'll sort of read it along to show you what Cal and I want you to know about it. So I have to tell you, actually, the two steps after you look up the words. The next step is you paraphrase it. So when you paraphrase, you can't just make a general statement. It has to be what we called a close paraphrase, meaning try to, as much as you can to paraphrase it word for word. So therefore, some words don't change because the word the will always be the word mm -hmm. the. <laughs> and also, sometimes there's brief vocabulary in the English language for one thing, and you, you can't come up with a different word. So for instance, in the first line of this prologue or sonnet, two households, both alike in dignity, just to paraphrase that, you know, we're talking about two households, 
and how they are equal in society, let's say. But what was meant by a word in Shakespeare's time is often a different nuance than how we experience that word today. So the word that jumps out, first of all, is households. Often when I'll ask students, what's a household? They'll say something like a nuclear family, a residence for parents and children or something. And actually, when they look that up the way we do in the OED, they find that it means a vast domestic establishment, or as the royal family refer to themselves sometimes, the firm. It's almost a a corporation, something way beyond what we think of as a house with a fence and a garage. (laughs) So there's the point that in order to even paraphrase this, you have to have looked up the words. And both alike in dignity, we had to paraphrase this multiple times. I think Cal said something like, equal in estimation. So, you know, two domestic establishments, equal in estimation, or of equal standing in the community. So, you just paraphrase through in that way. So, once you're through with the paraphrase, then the next step, and this is the step that gets people able to make sense, if it's sounding stilted or inaccessible or foreign or something, there's actually a pattern in here, which is very simple to find, that can make speaking it more of a story for the listener to follow. So what you have to do is you underline all your nouns, and then you underline the verbs twice. But it has to be active verbs in a way. You don't want to stress the be verb or the verb to do and things like that. Not usually. Of course, those are rules to be broken. But you just mostly underline all your verbs twice and all your nouns once. And the whole premise of this is to stress the verbs most and to stress the nouns almost as much and let the other parts of speech, in most instances, take care of themselves. And if you do just that, Shakespeare can be clear about 90% of the time. You know, there's always something you have to do which breaks a rule, so we keep that in mind. Like, if you have pronouns, don't stress pronouns. They'll point people in the wrong direction for meaning, unless you're comparing things like that. Don't stress prepositions unless they're a part of a two-word verb, like sit down, stand up. Otherwise, don't stress them. And adjectives, most of the time, if you stress adjectives, you're going to be so descriptive that people will miss the point. (laughs) (laughs) You hear descriptions so easily that you don't have to stress them much. The other thing is we hear negation very, very easily. So the main rule is don't stress the word not. It usually doesn't scan that way. So, you know, usually not going to say could not, did not. You're usually going to say did not, could not, would not. We hear negation so easily that the words have become couldn't, isn't, you know. So you don't have to stress those things. But it's hilarious how much these rules get broken and how classically they get broken. So you don't stress the verb be, you don't stress not. But then, that <laughs> breaks the rules to be or not to, to be, be, right? And so you have to break the rules. But if it's not a special thing, then that's not one of the greatest lines from Shakespeare. Right. The reason it stands out in popular culture to this day is because it went against the flow of things. So just looking at the sonnet for the points that Cal thought important, 
First of all, if you're in iambic pentameter with beginners and they don't know what that is and it just sounds like Latin, I think the term iambic pentameter is really a shame. Because <laughs> <laughs> we start calling things by the clinical names or Latin names and things, and I find whenever I'm teaching that there are people in the room who are scared to ask, what is iambic pentameter? And why is it important? And should I know it? And what Cal and I came up with calling it is syncopation. You know, in order to have syncopation, you have to have a beat. Once you have the beat, then you're going to syncopate the beat. So if the beat is didum, 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 then even the first word of this play syncopates. Because you're not going to go to households both alike in dignity. I mean, what would be the point of that, right? So <laughs> It would be confusing. It would be terrible because we didn't hear how many households, or it sounds more like T.O. households. In order to get the word to in there, which is all important to this play, you have to say to as the strong beat, and so then you're off and running because you've already broken the rules. So because you're stressing verbs and nouns, two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we, you don't get your first verb until lay, so it doesn't come till the second line, and late in the second line. You know, you could start this out, lay are seen in fair Verona, where two households are both alike in dignity. So everything that you say from the word to onward has to be setting the scene. And, you know, this prologue is very much aware that there's a bare stage and you're going to have to imagine all of this. And so lay is a very, very big verb. To lay the scene is what we're doing. And so every word, practically, at least every noun of the first line and a half, has to be with the intention and action of laying the scene. So it's as if the verb lay is reaching back to what was just said and reaching forward to scene at the same time. That verbs are active beings. They can reach back or they can reach forward. They have two arms. So think of lay saying all this. Lay is saying, two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, and see how lay is the nucleus there yep. to the action of the whole two lines. Lovely. Then here's what goes on in the third line. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny. Now, if I say it like that, even if I try to cover up for the deficiency of it, which is I'm not stressing the right word, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, the best word in that line is break, and it's in the weak position. Okay, so two comes next, so you could say it like sit down, but unlike sit down, break two is not common. You know, sit down, stand up, go away, come back, they're all common. We hear them as a two-word verb. Break two, we don't hear that way. It wouldn't make sense to hear all two and no break. So that is what we call, in the case of the word two or the word break, this term I get from Kristen Linklater, and she probably got it from her teacher at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, Michael McCohen, called it a sprung rhythm. And I think that's the best term for it. It's when you syncopate a weak beat to be a strong beat. So instead of saying, from ancient grudge, break to new mutiny, you say, from ancient grudge, break to new mutiny. And break goes back to grudge and goes forward to mutiny. From ancient grudge, break to new mutiny. And what it's telling you is what you're about to see. You're about to see Samson and Gregory 
and then you're about to see the Montagues meet them, and then you're going to see all hell break loose. It's literally going to break into a new mutiny momentarily. And it's called a sprung beat. Yes, a sprung beat or a sprung rhythm. I called it always a sprung rhythm. That's terrific. But sprung is the perfect word, isn't it? It's so much more evocative than, you know, trochee or anapath. No, or... <laughs> so, okay, so you get the idea, right? If you have underlined all your verbs and nouns, now you've got an illumination of where the sense is in the piece. So, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. So, the make verb there is very important in balancing this. You know, we've got civil blood, and then we've got civil hands. And then, in this case, unclean, as an adjective, it has every reason to be stressed, because it's sort of like a two-word verb, make unclean. And in the bargain, it's at the end of the line. But if you say, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, you don't really have enough action, I don't think, for what you're introducing here, which is a huge bloody fight. So, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, you have to do something with the word makes. It doesn't exactly need to be sprung, but it needs to be fully underlined. And just listening to you, you also did a little something with blood. Yes, because what you have to do is you've got to set your nouns up to meet your verbs. And so if you set up blood, that make is going to reach back to it. It's the action of the verb. You actually can be in the action of a verb before you say a verb. You know, it's very reminiscent of the acting 101 thing of playing actions that are infinitive verbs. Shakespeare has the script set up that way. So, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, so we've got loins, we've got foes, but we don't get the verb until the next line. And this one is funny about Shakespeare because we've lost the knack for this, but in Shakespeare's day, puns were not necessarily funny. They could be witty, but wit wasn't even necessarily funny. It was just mentally acute. So actually, we have a double meaning here. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Now, take their life rings with us because we know the story we're about to see, and it's a classic play. We think of suicide. But when it's forth from loins, that's not about suicide. That's about birth. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, begin their lives. And then it's just got that ring, that overtone of a double meaning, that they will kill themselves. That's just a foreshadowing figure of speech. This is a line about birth, not death. Whose misadventured, piteous overthrows. Now, overthrows here is a noun. People mistake this one for a verb. But it's about the unlucky circumstances of a life. Whose misadventured, piteous overthrows doth with their death. Now, I'm going to read this line the way it's written, dogmatically, for iambic pentameter. Doth with their death bereave their parents' strife. It's another sprung beat. It has to be, because if you go out there with bereave, <laughs> it's not going to tell the story. But here's the thing about bury and break. They both have that BR thing in them. They're both the significant sprung words in the speech, and they are cause and effect. Break and bury. Break into a fight, bury our children. 
and the ideas that they're involved in are the significant ideas in the sonnet, in the prologue, in the play. Absolutely. I mean, you could say this sonnet, in a sense, in the words break and bury. That tells a great deal of the story. Now, that can't be chance. I don't know if it's unconscious artistry, conscious craftspersonship, but whatever it is, break and bury are too much alike aesthetically and planted both in the sprung rhythm position and cause and effect in meaning. This is a well-structured piece of writing. Yeah. The fearful passage of their death-marked love. Now, here's another thing about nouns. Star-crossed lovers is a noun. It's a compound noun. Death-marked love is a compound noun. If you make them otherwise, they're too hard to understand. You have to compress them. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, you notice we don't have any verbs yet, which but their children's end, not could remove. So you get death-marked love, you get parents' rage, children's end, and then you get remove as the verb at the end of all that. So the point is sort of loaded with action to the very end of that thought, which but their children's end, not could remove. Cautionary tale is now the two hours traffic of our stage. Now, with star-crossed lovers, death-marked love, two hours traffic, we're in the realm of coining. These are new phrases, especially star-crossed lovers and two hours traffic. They're used in popular culture to this day, these phrases, but they seem to be coined here. And so when you coin something, it has to come from invention in the moment. You can't say this from a recitation. It has to be said from the need of the moment. How can I say this? How can I put this into language? And then that brings an immediacy to the piece. We're back in the now at this point. Yes. Now look at this at the end. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So we've got attend, miss, strive, mend. We have more verbs in the last two lines than anywhere else. And that's because we have to launch you into the play. So it's going to take action on the prologue's part to launch you into the play. And four verbs is sort of the musical equivalent to putting a button on this and launching into the play. Now, also, there's another structure at work here, which is the line endings. And line endings have their own power. Every line needs to culminate without resolving. Because if it resolves, that goes to a period. But a line ending builds to the end. And if you just say the last word of the line, dignity, scene, mutiny, unclean, foes, overthrows, strife, love, rage, remove, stage, attend, mend. It's like a haiku, and it's significant to know that it ends with healing. And that is part of Tina Packer's definition of classical theater. It has to have healing powers. I think this is unbelievably valuable, Lewis. This is just such a beautiful primer. Thank you. I'm glad I had a chance. And I'm also glad to do this in memory of Cal today because this work was so important to him and it was very generous of him to share it with me. And so it means a great deal to me, especially with Cal having died so recently to know that we do carry the work on. Yeah, he is smiling somewhere right now. Yes, I think so. 
Lewis, thank you for giving us such an elegant and utilitarian tool as actors to work with. You've given us nothing short of a masterclass in not only how to approach Shakespeare, but also this wonderful sonnet, which begins Romeo and Juliet. Thank you for having me today. It's been my pleasure. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And this is The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.